be seated. I was telling someone this week that <clears throat> there are many Sundays that uh, sometimes I feel like I'm dragging myself um, here, um, which I, I'm sure many of you feel as well. Um, and then oftentimes the, the work of God meeting me is, is hearing you sing. And I was sharing that with one of our elders, and he said, me too. Um, and I think there's, there's part of that that is meant to be. Um, one of the things that we will see as we begin our study of Revelation is that we are joining together with the heavenly chorus of those who've gone before us and the angels who are joining in singing to the Lord as we gather together, one church body around the throne. We've gotten a foretaste when we sing of, of what is going on in heaven and what will come in the new heavens and new earth. If you've got your Bibles, turn with me to the book of Revelation. We're going to begin uh, this Sunday a study um, on the book of Revelation. Um, I, uh, I've, I've told others this, um, John Calvin, uh, the great reformer, never preached the book of Revelation. He's smarter than me. Um, I had said for years um, that I won't preach uh, Revelation during my first 20 years of ministry. I crossed that line a few years ago, and I've been putting it off. Um, but I think it's time. Um, and, uh, and one of the reasons that I think it's time is that... Um, is that we were thinking about what to preach next. I said, I thought Zechariah was such a good book for us because it did a good job. It does such a great job of grounding us in what is most real, pulling back the curtain and letting us see who God is and what he's up to in the world. And I wish I could go back and do Zechariah. And I thought to myself, well, you know, there's another book in the Bible that does a very similar thing in a very similar way. Um, and so we're going to go where fools um, only um, decide to go and jump into the book of Revelation. Revelation chapter 1, if you're new to Christianity and aren't familiar with the Bible, we've printed this for you. This is the last book of the Bible. So if, children, if you have your Bible, you can just flip to the last book in the first verse of the first chapter. Revelation chapter 1, starting with verse 1. The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show to his servants the things that must soon take place. He made it known by sending his angel to his servant John, who bore witness to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ, even to all that he saw. Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy. And blessed are those who hear and who keep what is written in it, for the time is near. This is God's word. Would you ask, join me in asking his blessing on his word preached? Let's pray. Lord Jesus, you stand in the midst of your church. Even today, the churches around the world are gathered in your heavenly presence. You're on your throne and from it you speak. And so we pray, our sword-tongued Savior, our lion and our lamb, speak to us with power. The 
power that spoke the world into existence out of nothing now addresses us today. May we be changed by it, convicted by it, encouraged by it, strengthened by it. Cut us where we need to be cut. Heal us where we need to be healed. And We pray that you would do this by your spirit through your word. We pray this, our Savior, in your name. Amen. Well, um, here's, <laughs> here's what I think we are all feeling to some degree or another. Things are not what they seem to be. There's something going on, something unseen. It's a little difficult at times to put your finger on it, but you feel it, don't you? As we're discussing, as I mentioned, what to preach next, I thought that we really need a deep and profound hope that helps us interpret reality. And not the kind of hope that looks out on the horizon and says, uh, 2021 will be better than 2020 because um, it sort of seems so far like 2021 looked at 2020 and said, hey, hold my beer. It's been a tough period for us. The pandemic's killed over 370,000 people in the United States and almost 2 million worldwide, and it's just now heating up. Those numbers are going to escalate. It's revealed, maybe even worse, deep divides in the most fundamental ways that we see the world and process information. Then a group of rebels broke into the Capitol to disrupt the certification of the nation's vote for our next president. And the book of Revelation was written into a world that was very, very similar. Rome was filled with political unrest at times. How do you know that? Because every earthly empire on the face of this world over the cross of history has experience that. There's no exemption from that rule. The church in the midst of this political turmoil was increasingly at the time that the revelation was written was being pushed to the fringe of the society because in every earthly kingdom in the history of the world that has been true. Revelation is written by a suffering pastor to a suffering people for their patient endurance in Christ. Look with me if you've got your Bible at verse 9, and I would encourage you to bring your Bible every week because this might happen some. We've only printed the first three verses for you, but as Revelation is such an intertwined book, we're going to have to bring in at times things that aren't printed. So if you've got your Bible, look at verse 9 of chapter 1. John writes this, I, John, your brother and partner in the tribulation and the kingdom, both those are the reality, tribulation and kingdom, both are going on presently in the world, and the patient endurance that are in Christ was on the island called Patmos on account of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. There it is, written by a suffering pastor to a suffering people to give them a lens to view the events of the world. It's written towards an end. John's writing so that his people might see the world rightly. Verse 19, if you've got your Bible. Jesus says to him, Write, therefore, the things that you have seen, the things that are, and those that are to take place afterwards. He's, he's writing towards an end of revealing, and that's what 
this book is. It is a revelation. Now, just as a pet peeve, it is not revelations. It is revelation, singular. It's written to tell a suffering people of Jesus and the hope that is in the hands of Jesus. And that is, has to be where we start and end in the midst of this chaos. It's got to be always. What has Jesus said? Verse 1 now. The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show his servants, that's slaves, the things that must soon take place. He made it known by sending his angel to the servant John. And this is going to be an important theme in the book of Revelation. God acts and he reveals and the God who acts and reveals is God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. God the Father gave this word to Jesus Christ. Jesus gave it to an angel, which just means messenger in Greek, as we'll see in a few weeks. The angel then made it known to Jesus' slave, his bondservant John, who's made it known to the church. And this is the pattern. God speaks and inscripturates, puts it down in writing form, and the Bible is reliable because it is the revelation of Jesus Christ. It is the word of the one who was slain for the sins of his people and is now reigning with power and is coming again to bring a new heavens and new earth to put all things right. And as the revelation of Jesus Christ, it is not just about him. It is his word and the way that he is present with his people. And one of the purposes of this book is to assure the church that Jesus is reigning and working. That he may have finished his earthly ministry, but that does not mean that Jesus has finished his ministry on earth. And he's begun his reign. And he's been given all power and authority in heaven and on earth. Again, if you've got your Bible, you see this beautiful vision in chapter 1, verse 9. I, John, your partner in the tribulation, I'm on Patmos, and I was in the Spirit on the Lord's Day. That's a Sunday. And I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet saying, Write these things in the book, and I'm going to send it to the seven churches, the seven churches in eastern or in western, present-day Turkey. And then in verse 13, this is the vision of the one who's speaking these words. He's standing in the midst of the seven lampstands. We'll see, those are a symbol. It's, Revelation is full of symbols, symbols that point to reality. These, are, these lampstands are symbols, the churches. Jesus is standing there in the midst of them, and he is one like a son of man, clothed with a long robe, with a golden sash around his head, chest. The hairs on his head were white, like white wool, like snow. His eyes were like the flame of fire. His feet burnished bronze, refined in a furnace, stable. And his voice was like the roar of mighty waters. And in his right hand, he held the seven stars. And from his mouth came a sharp two-headed sword in his face 
was like the sun shining in its full strength. That's the one who's speaking in this book. It's the revelation of the reigning Jesus Christ. And because he is the one speaking, it's got tremendous power. Notice the promise attached to this book that's attached to all of Scripture in verse 3. Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy and blessed are those who hear and who keep what are written in it. It's not just the downloading of information, but God is here in His power to bless His people through His Word. In its original setting, there was literally those who read the Scriptures and the rest of the congregation listened to it. And because Jesus is presently working in the world through His Word, this reigning Jesus with a sword coming out of His mouth, to do powerful work, battle in the hearts of God's people, both, he can promise, are going to be blessed. Because this is how Jesus changes lives. If you're hopeless because you've tried everything to change and have failed or either found everything else to be a failure, there is hope. Because the lamb who was slain for the sins we've done is also the one who sits on his throne to transform us. He slays, he was slain for our sin, he slays the sin that still grips our heart. And this is the tool that he's going to use to do both. The word that he's going to use to give us hope. The word that's going to be used to deliver. The word that's going to be used to strengthen. But it's not just just like a magic ambulance. You're not going to read the Bible and everything's okay all of a sudden. Because you don't read it and leave it. It's not like a rub it on the way out and, you know, it's going to do its magic on me. No, it's blessed is the one who reads hears, and keeps. You keep it by ingesting it. Much like the same way you keep food in your body, right? You don't just roll it around in your mouth and then spit it out and go with your day. If it's going to nourish you, you roll it around, enjoy it, and then consume it. It's got to be kept in order to nourish, and it's got to be kept in the depths of our body for it to nourish. And so God's word has to be kept in our soul. The word of this one who speaks has power. The deeper it goes. And notice too how church-centered this is, how actually worship-centered this work is. We'll talk about this later when we look at the seven different churches and at the end of chapter 1. We'll see this a lot more. But this is, in order to understand the book of Revelation, here's a very important interpretive principle. This is a pastoral letter. This isn't some, there's not some key to understanding this that just apart from how do you read the rest of the New Testament? There are letters written to people. There are letters written to churches. And this is a letter 
that John writes from his exile on Patmos to seven churches in Asia Minor. It was read to be, it was designed to be read aloud to a gathered community of God's people. Blessed is the one who hears, but also the one who reads this aloud. And that describes an essential dynamic of what happens when God's people gather together. God's people are meant to, we're meant to hear and to receive because Jesus is speaking. That makes corporate worship when we gather together like a power-up in a video game of God's Word. It gives that little extra oomph. You can read your Bible all week and ingest it on Sunday. Neglect your Bible all week and ingest it in the context of God's people. You'll do well. You'll grow. Read your Bible all week by yourself at home. Not be in the presence of God's people. You won't grow as well. You're going to stunt your growth. Every single one of the New Testament letters, if you're not in a local church at the time, you don't get God's word. We need Jesus to speak into our broken experience with the kind of power that comes when we all gather together. Because this is where he's here. We'll see us again at the end of chapter 1. There's a context in which it was meant to be experienced. The one who's speaking, he's speaking in the context of God's people being together, but it's also meant, the book of Revelation as a whole, is meant to create a lens for us to see reality through, because we need God to interpret the events of the chaos that we're seeing through. And that message, that key to understanding reality is not hidden on a message board somewhere or on social media, it is revealed clearly in God's word. This is the way the book of Revelation is supposed to work in the church. Again, look at verse 1. This is how it begins. The revelation of Jesus Christ. And that word revelation is the Greek word apocalypse. Right? This is how it begins. The apocalypse of Jesus Christ. And when I was talking to one of our staff this week, I told her that we're going to preach the revelation. She said, oh, is that because you think we're living in the apocalypse? She knows that's not what this word means, but that's the way we think the word apocalypse is used. It's, it's some climactic event at the end of time, but Here's what I'm going to say over and over again. I need you to get that understanding of apocalypse out of your mind. Just ditch it. Fight against that temptation. Quit using it that way because it's just not the way it's used in the Bible. The apocalypse literally means the unveiling. Sometimes it's used when someone would open a take the cover off of a pot so you could see what was simmering inside, what's been cooking, or when... Think of when a car designer has their car under wraps. And at a car show, they pull it off so you can see what they have been up to. It is the public unveiling of what was once hidden. When I studied, when we studied Zechariah, I said this. This is what God's doing. He's pulling back the curtain to show us what is most real in the world. What he is up to. What his plans are and his purposes are 
in the world. And that's generally the purpose of apocalyptic literature. And Revelation is, is firmly in that strand of apocalyptic literature. And the goal is, as we'll see as we work our way through the book of Ezekiel, we are going to read chapter by chapter by chapter by chapter through the book of Ezekiel in worship. One of the things that's sort of in our having to restructure in the pandemic is it's given us a chance to read longer portions of Scripture on a Sunday morning. And I thought to myself, I would love to use that to read through entire books of the Bible. Here's our chance. We're going to read through the entire book of, of Ezekiel. Ezekiel, second half of Daniel, parts of Amos, number of passages. are this, they're apocalyptic literature. And a goal of apocalyptic literature is not to say, here's what's happening at the end of time but to pull back the reality so you can see God's unveiling. Let me tell you what I'm up to in the world. Let me tell you what is going on. The goal is to say, more is going on than you can interpret by yourself or see with your natural eye. And what this does, what the book of Revelation does, and apocalyptic literature in general does, is it gives us a story to order our lives around. It's not a story in that it's a fable or a work of fiction. It is the most true story that every other story wants to be true and every other story mimics in little pieces and those pieces don't always fit together. And so what John is doing in the book of Revelation is he is appealing to our imagination to give our heart a story through which our minds can interpret the events that we see. And the key interpretive principle for understanding Revelation is not that it's an almanac. Remember an old farmer's almanac? You'd get it every year and be like, "What's the? F it's going to tell you the future. It's going to tell you what the weather's like and the events. And it's going to interpret the future for you. It's not an almanac. It's not a newspaper from the future. Verse 19, again, if you've got your Bibles, it is a recounting of the work of Jesus as the culmination of God's redemptive purposes in the world. That which was, is, and is to come. And as such, this is true of the Bible as a whole. It is God's revealing of the purposes in history. What is God up to? And I think... If you're not a Christian, or maybe you grew up in a different tradition, you kind of see the Bible as, a, as a, a list of rules to live by. And what we'll see throughout, what we're committed to in a church, is that the Bible is not about a list of rules to live by. It is about a person to live under. To give yourself wholeheartedly to as you live your life. So that Jesus is less a model of life. Rather, he is the one who is the life. He is the victorious lamb, the ruling king, and the one who returns to put all things right. That's the general overview of the book. And then one of the beautiful things that this does for us is it takes the weight off of our shoulders, right? Because if the Bible comes to us, or even Revelation comes to us as a, as a list of rules to live by, then it, the world's on our shoulders. But if this is the story of the one to live under, he's the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. He's the Lion 
the king and the lamb slain for our sins. He's the creator and the one who's returning with a new creation to put all things right. Where his people will dwell with him forever and ever. A recounting of that which was and is and is to come. And so we need new eyes that we can see the reality behind the reality. That's what the book of Revelation is doing. It's pulling back the curtain so we can see what is most real to see beyond events. It's like going to the eye doctor right? and they ask you, they take, take your glasses off and read the chart on the wall. Like, it's, what's the furthest down you can see? Maybe the first line? I can see the big letters, but at some point, these little things start to become really blurry, and then he gives you a new set of glasses, and you're like, oh, wow, that's what was there. That's how the book of Revelation is supposed to function, that God is giving us new eyes so we can see what is most real, and what is most real is not the events, but the God who is behind them working all things to the glory of the name of Jesus. So let me give us three interpretive principles to set the stage going forward. This first one, if you've ever tried to read the book of Revelation, um, you're going to find contradictory to your experience, but I think it is true. Because it is the unveiling, it is the revelation of Jesus Christ, it's clear. The unveiling of of Jesus Christ is the unveiling of what God is up to. And God is not a God of obscurity, but clarity. It's the unveiling of the hope that we have in Jesus Christ in his present reign and future reign. Most of the modern approaches to Revelation treat it more like it's an obscuring than a revealing. I remember, I can't tell you how many times I've seen like these massive charts with arrows going all over it. And it's like, this is the key to understanding the book of Revelation. And I thought to myself, is there a key to understanding the key? Look, the book of Revelation was written to an uneducated people. It was written to everyday, normal man, woman, and child. And as an interpretive principle, just generally, this is what happens. When it starts to get obscure, just back up. I'm lost in the details, just back up a minute. Say, look, here's the point. Jesus has won, so he's going to win, and he's going to bring his church with him. So it's clear, because it's God's revelation. Second, and this is partly why it becomes unclear, it uses imagery and story to communicate. And the reason John does this is to incite our imagination. It's a highly visual book. It's more art than science. It's full of dragons and swords and epic battles with angelic armies and trumpets announcing the arrival of the king of kings You see that word show in verse 1 literally means to show by signs and imagery. I'm going to be clear by appealing to your imagination with signs and imagery. And it's clear by inciting our imagination to see things differently. And so children, you might find this book easier to understand than your parents do. Because your imagination is better. 
If you read science fiction or fantasy, you're going to have a better understanding of what God's communicating to his people and why he's communicating it this way. There's some good advice at the end of chapter 3. Blessed are those who read aloud, and blessed are those who hear. That would challenge you at some point to just listen to these words. Have someone read this book aloud to you, or download an app that will read it aloud to you, or have your spouse or your kids read aloud to you. And then do this. Just close your eyes and listen. And it will come alive and clear in new and profound ways. Because it was meant to appeal to our imagination. And then thirdly, circling back around, when it does get confusing, just back up. What's John saying to us? One commentator tells the story of a group of seminary students playing basketball. Right? And if you've been around seminary students, they're like, they've got it all figured out and they can't wait to show it to the world. So they look over there and they see the janitor humbly sitting in the corner reading his Bible. And they look over and it's the book of Revelation. And they're like, oh, here's our chance. We're going to show them how much. Do you understand what you're reading? And he looks up from his pages and says, yep, Jesus wins. So if you've got your Bibles, again, turn with me to the chapter 17, verse 14. And I want you to highlight this, circle it, do whatever you need to do, because this is the summary statement of the entire book. They will make war on the land. This is Revelation 17, 14. They will make war on the Lamb, and the Lamb will conquer them, for He is Lord of lords and King of kings, and those who with Him are called, chosen, and faithful. See, what this does is the unveiling shows us things that are not easily seen. The ones who seem to win, don't win. The world and the flesh aren't the ones who win. It's the unveiling of God's plans ultimately for the world and more specifically applied to Jesus' bride, His beloved church. He's one. He's the lamb slain and the lion sitting on the throne. The king with a sword coming out of his mouth. He's going to win the beast, the world, and the kingdoms of this world can do nothing to him and therefore nothing to his church. And he's going to win in a climactic day when he descends with the trumpet blast to bring the new heavens and new earth to put everything right again. When you get in the details, just back up. Turn to 17, 14 and go, okay, this is the point. I get it. One October afternoon in 1982, Badger Stadium in Madison, Wisconsin was packed. More than 60,000 diehard University of Wisconsin supporters were there watching their team get pummeled by Michigan State. 
What seemed odd, though, in the experience of that day was that as the score got more lopsided, the fans burst into applause and shouts of joy from the Wisconsin side of the stadium. How could they cheer when their team was losing? And the answer is because they were listening to a different reality. Most of them were listening to the World Series. Where the Brewers were beating the Cardinals in game three. And you see what's happening is they were responding to a different and better story as the events were unfolding around them. And this is what Paul says. In 2 Corinthians 4.8, he encourages us to fix our eyes not on what is seen, but what is unseen. And when we do, we can rejoice even in our hardships because we see Jesus and his larger victory. And that's the story that we're listening to. To interpret the reality around us. So that's why we're going into Revelation. That's our hope. Jesus has won. So he's going to win. He's going to take his church with him. Let's pray. Lord, as we come to the table. We do so. Not just to remember your death until you come. But because this is a means of grace. Where you root us again in the story. And so take these ordinary elements that we can see and taste and touch. And use them. To nourish us and strengthen us for the days ahead, which are going to be full of bewilderment and chaos and things that we can't explain or do anything about. You've set a table for your people in the midst of our enemies. Let us rejoice in your victorious love. And so we pray this in your name, our Savior. Amen. Well, you should have found a cup on your seat when you came in. There are two layers to this. We'll pull back the first layer, which will reveal the bread to us. It's a good use of apocalypse. We're going to pull back the layers and apocalypse the supper for us. You'll find on verse or on page 11 of your worship guide our responsive reading. My friends, Christ has come. In him God will restore, confirm, strengthen and establish us. And Christ will come again. To him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen.